So it's been said in the past that the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Let me repeat that again. It's been said in the past that the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. What a statement, church. What a statement. So we, wouldn't churches across America, across our world, look a little different if we really acknowledge that truth? That, that none of us are worthy to even be here? None of us are worthy to lift up praise and worship to God as we just sang? None of us are worthy of salvation? But yet, Christ is, and he loved us enough to offer salvation on the cross for us, to give his life for us. I pray that we, at Crosspoint here, are very quick to admit that we're not a perfect group of people, that we are an unlikely unity, as we're going to see today, with the calling of Levi or Matthew. Uh, We're people from all walks of life. We have different careers. We have different upbringings. We have different, a lot of different things, a lot of different opinions, you know, uh, different upbringings. We're different generations, we're different ages, but yet we are all unified, maybe unlikely unified by the gospel. You look at our world, our world is separated into cliques. You have this group that likes this, this group that's this age, this group that's this, but the church is different. We're, we're in unlikely unity from, from very little to veterans, we'll call you, right? Um, you know, we, we all have different, different nationalities sometimes, different ideas about things, different opinions. And yet we can be united through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the great equalizer, the gospel is. It, no matter what your social status, your economic status, no matter what your vocation is, the gospel reveals that we are all in the exact same boat. We are all completely and utterly hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. How glorious is that desperation that we have, that we can be united in him, because we're not hopeless if we're in Christ. We have all hope and all faith. So join me as we see one of the most unlikely people to be united to Christ and his followers today. So let's get into Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, this has been a, a blessed week of studying your word, just these, these short verses here um, just give us such an insight into your love for the unlovable, your calling of the unlikely called. Um, you do not judge or see as the world sees and judges, but you choose according to your amazing sovereignty and your love and your mercy. We, we just thank you for that. We thank you for choosing us if we are in you. Pray that all of us here are. If we're not, pray that we see your love and mercy and your kindness and that draws us to repentance through the Holy Spirit. God, as, as, we, as we study your word today, may you open up our hearts and minds to hear it. May it change us from the inside out. May it not just become intellectual knowledge for our brains to be puffed up, 
because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But may this, this knowledge of your word go into our hearts, and may love abound, and may action stem from what we learn today. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. So today we're going to see how Christ does not choose according to worldly ideas or religiosity. Instead, he chooses based on his own sovereign ways. And in calling of sinful people to repentance, we learn that, number one, Christ calls the unlikely. Christ calls the unlikely. Let's read verse 27 again. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So we're introduced to this tax collector named Levi. Um, the other gospel writers don't tell us who Levi is at this point, but Matthew does let us know that Levi is, in fact, him. So Matthew is his, his, uh, his uh, Levi is his Aramaic name, Matthew is his Hebrew name. A lot of people had two names back then. We saw with Saul and Paul and different things like that, uh, Simon and, and Peter. And we're told this man is a tax, collector's and a tax collector at the time. And I know tax collectors today, the IRS doesn't have the best reputation. Nobody likes the IRS, let's just be honest. Nobody wants to pay taxes, and certainly nobody wants to be audited when you get one of those wonderful things. But tax collectors in America have a much, much better reputation than in Jesus' day. Uh, it, tax collectors in Jewish time, and, and according to Jewish cultures, were, were, was the lowest of low position you could have throughout the entire uh, area. And they, they were known as sellouts to Rome. And there were two levels of tax collectors. There was this upper overseer uh, level that didn't actually go and collect taxes personally. Uh, they were hated, but not as much because they weren't the faces of t tax collection. But the, the next group down were the face of tax collection. Uh, they set up their booths, and they were the ones that went out and took the money from their fellow Jews to give to Rome. And even worse than that, a lot of these men were even more hated because they got to keep the extra that they took. So, you know, let's say you're supposed to, obviously this is in American dollars, we're not going to go in denarii, but let's say you're there supposed to pay $50, well you could say, well it's going to be 60 and you could pocket the 10. And so these men were not known as the uh, most upright of individuals, uh, per se. And to add insult to injury, Matthew's, to Matthew's case of being called by Christ, we see in Mark 2.13 a parallel of this, that his tax booth is nowhere other than on the shore. So, and it's probably near Capernaum. And who we learned that worked as fishermen in Capernaum, but James and John and Andrew and Peter. We've just heard them be called. They, they've been following Christ on and off for a while. We've heard them be fully called. And so these fishermen most likely had to pay taxes to Matthew. They've most likely been taken advantage of probably by Matthew. And so coming to this man, you would think that a stand-up guy like Jesus would, with his posse with him, especially some of whom didn't like Matthew probably, most people didn't like Matthew because uh, he was a tax collector, you would think he would look at Matthew right in the eye and say, you know what, you are a horrible man. You have taken advantage of your people, my people, and he would have offered some nice condemnation words that let him know he was going to be eternally destroyed and um, kept walking, right? He would be condemned for what he's done. At least that's what would have been expected by Jewish elites in Jesus' day. That's what the Pharisees would have done. They would have let him know, you're going to hell. Like, you're, you're just, you just might as well, you're dead to us. You're not really one of us. You are not part of God's chosen people. You're, you're, you're like a Samaritan. You're, you're not part of us anymore. We're, we're, we're ca casting you off. But Jesus does something different. Doesn't Jesus always do what's different than the religious leaders? It's just amazing to watch how he blows their mind time and time again. He looks at Matthew, 
And what does he say? Does he say, Matthew, you need to do this, 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 and you need to fix your life. You need this. We talked about this last week. You need to do all these things. No, he says two words. Go ahead and say them. Follow me. That's what he tells us to. Follow me. And isn't that wonderful? Two short words. No no conversation about Matthew's past and what he's done and how he doesn't deserve this. And, you know, no, no condemnation for Matthew selling out his own people, pocketing some extra money here and there. Nothing like that. No, just a call to follow. Can you imagine the scene at the time? You've got, you know, uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John, and they're with Jesus. Can you imagine what's going through their minds at the time? Like, dude, it's one thing to call us uneducated fishermen to follow you, but that guy? Like, there's got to be some standard that we have in this fellowship. There's got to be some standard we have in this whole discipleship. If anybody's not going to make it, like, dude, you can take a centurion before you take this guy. Let's take some Romans and put them with us. Let's not take this guy. You know, he's probably taking advantage of us, you know. But what would Matthew's response be to such grace and kindness offered by Jesus with those two words that are unattached to any conditions? Just follow me. Reading verse 28, it says, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That should be our response when God comes to us, when Jesus comes to us and he says, Follow me. We should be willing to leave everything and rise and follow him. Matthew, seeing the weight of this call, leaves everything and follows Christ. And we have to remember that tax collectors were pretty well-to-do in this time. He might not have been the upper echelon that were really rolling in it, but he was still doing pretty well. He had probably pocketed a decent bit of money. These guys were well-dressed, and they lived lavishly. They lived well, and he's willing to leave it all behind and follow a poor carpenter from Nazareth. What did Jesus have to offer Matthew financially? He didn't even have a house. He says he has nowhere to lay his head. He stayed with different people. He wasn't wealthy, the money that they did have, Judas, we find out later in the gospel, stealing it. So, like, you know, we got an embezzlement guy. They're not, they're not well-to-do. This was a, you know, it was a huge step, as we saw earlier in chapter 5, for the fishermen to leave their nets after the huge catch of fish and the miracle that we saw a few weeks ago. That was big. But as we, as we see in John chapter 21, after Jesus is crucified, they're able to go back to that. And Jesus does another miracle, brings them back. But you know, their following Christ had a big cost, but it wasn't a full cost. They could go back. Their family was still fishing. They, they still had a job, but for Matthew, he had no hope. Once you walked away from this, they weren't accepting you back. And so how amazing is this leaving this point of no return and going and following Christ? How amazing is that transformation? And this is a sign of true rep- repentance, friends. If we look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, which we've talked about many times, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We must understand that true salvation requires repentance, and Matthew here demonstrates true repentance. He turns from his old life and turns to Christ. And so when we're saved, there should be an obvious change in our lives. We've been born again. This, this change should be somewhat radical in nature. And don't misunderstand salvation for us today. It is God who calls, God who draws. He is the one who saves us. But we must be willing to humble ourselves, to fully repent and follow him. And Matthew was willing to leave everything behind. And my question is, are you and have you? My friends, if you've not made that decision to follow Christ, know that he calls the unlikely. 
well, he wouldn't choose me. I'm the last one chosen on all the ball teams. I'm the last one chosen at work. I'm the last one chosen at school. No, he calls the unlikely. The, 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 the least likely to succeed voted in your class is who God oftentimes chooses to glorify himself. So you're never too far gone. You're never too weak. You're never too small. You're never too whatever it is, too far gone for him to save you. Next we see, number two, that Christ calls the undeserved. He calls the undeserved. We'll read 29 and 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at, at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Matthew didn't just stop with leaving everything and following Christ, which that was a huge step. There was repentance there. But he also goes and he tells everybody he knows about what just happened. And he invites them to a feast. And he does what all of us should do when we get saved. And frankly, we should continue to do as believers. He shares the love of Jesus with other people. He in introduces other people to his Savior. How amazing is that? And we're told that a large company of tax collectors and others are reclining at table with Jesus and his followers. And this whole reclining of table means this is probably a, a meal that lasts a while. There's a lot of conversation that's going on in this. And if we really try to picture this scene, this scene is the antithesis of last week. So last week we have this group of Pharisees and scribes, and they're all gathered together in this home. And remember, the, 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 the roof is open, they get dirty. and you know they're, These guys wouldn't have probably noticed the big difference if the roof opened and they got dirty, because these guys were pretty dirty guys. And, and this was a motley crew. Uh, this was a group of tax collectors and sinners. You know, who, who knows what, what things they were doing, who they were with, and what... You know what they've done in the past. So we have the one group full of religiosity and piousness, people dressed to a T, and Jesus does a miracle there. Now we have a completely opposite company at this point. But Matthew is throwing a great feast or banquet. And if you look at feasts and banquets, they're thrown because something good happened. You know, we think about the prodigal son, right? Whenever he comes back after being gone and squandering his wealth, what does the dad do? He kills the fattened calf and has this huge party, this huge banquet to celebrate the return of his son in Luke 15, 23. So Matthew is responding with this joy from, uh, that, he, that he has from Christ now. And the people that he knows, that he invites, are not your typical Sunday school group. It's not, not really necessarily who you think would, would be there. They're a pretty rough group of people, as we've been talking about. And we, but, but we look at the last week's people with the religious people, they all left unsaved for the most part. You know, th they're unchanged, and we see it here. They've just seen a huge miracle. The paralytic got up, took his mat, and walked out. Jesus had forgiven his sins before that. Huge things, and they leave, and they're completely unchanged. But now we have this, this group of unreligious people, we'll call them. Irreligious people, maybe, is the better term. And they are hanging out with Christ and listening to what he has to say. Matthew has already been saved, and you wonder how many of them actually responded in a positive way and started following Christ. And these religious people refuse to be taught by Jesus. They refuse to humble themselves, and they jump to their own conclusions, and they think, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I, I love how those two words are separate there, those two phrases, tax collectors and sinners, because tax collectors were worse and sinners. So it was bad to eat with sinners, really bad to eat with tax collectors. And Jesus is not only eating with a tax collector, he's called one to be his disciple. How great is 
Christ's mercy. Theologian Robert Stein says the following, True Christianity has always broken down economic, social, ethnic, and racial barriers. For where Christ is truly present, listen, that truly present, people will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I'm going to go and read Luke 13, 29, where he's quoting here. It says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. This is a little taste of heaven that Jesus has right now. Just a group of unlikely, undeserved misfits, like us, sinners. We're Gentile sinners to the Jews. And yet, we will be reclining with Jesus Christ at the table in heaven. How, how beautiful is that? It, it, that the heaven will be filled with a ton of undeserved people. There will actually be no one who deserves to be there. Listen to John write about in Revelation about the same idea, Revelation 7, 9. And after, I, I, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every nation, all tribes, all languages, all praising God in heaven. How beautiful is this picture. So sadly, the Pharisees believed that God could not save the undeserving. They believed he, he refused. They refused to believe that God could save the undeserving. They thought that God were only gonna, was only going to save those who truly deserved salvation, and that was them. How scary is that? And, and I pray we're going to talk about this later. If, if you think you deserve salvation, that's a scary place to be because we don't. We should identify with Matthew here. We should identify with the sinners that are undeserved, that, that should be on the outside looking in, but yet we're there. And how, how ironic is it that the Pharisees, although appearing as righteous, uh, they, they look righteous from the outside, they act righteous, everything looks righteous, yet they are further from salvation than the aptly termed sinners that Jesus is eating with at Matthew's banquet. My friends, unless we realize that we are all undeserved and unlikely we, will not, we can never be saved. And finally, we see that Christ calls the unwell. Verses 31 and 32, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus answers the, Phari answers the Pharisees with a really unique answer. And it's an answer that they take in a positive light. They actually raise their head after he says this. He says, it's not the well that need a physician, it's the, the sick. He's come to call the unrighteous, not the righteous, to repentance. And, and this leads the religious leaders, the Pharisees, to falsely assume that they're off the hook. They're good. They really don't need to listen to Jesus. They don't need to respond to Jesus because they're righteous. They're not sick. They're not, they're okay. You know, how frightening is this interchange? This self-righteousness is that blinding. Uh, Christ obviously knows that the, that the Pharisees and scribes are probably even worse sinners than the motley crew that he's hanging out with at the time. But knowing their refusal, knowing their hearts, knowing what was in their hearts, as we saw even in the last one, he was able to perceive their thoughts and know what was in their hearts. He allows them to be handed over to their self, to their sin, to their self-righteousness. He allows them to bask in their self-righteousness. We see this in Romans one twenty-eight. It's called judicial abandonment. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In this section in Romans, 
We see people that are very bad sinners. They're, they're doing a lot of horrible things, sexual, all kinds of different perversions. And finally, God says, okay, you can have it. It's all yours. Go after that. And he hands them over to that. And we see that he hands over these unrepentant sinners to their sinful ways. And this is where the Pharisees and scribes are now. They're, they're, they don't look like your typical sinners. They don't look like people that just live recklessly and do whatever they want to do. But it's just as dangerous. Legalism is just as scary as, as hedonism or doing whatever you want to do. They're, they're both very dangerous, and they both lead to eternal death. Ultimately, the scribes and the Pharisees missed the purpose of the law. That, that was their biggest sin, their biggest issue, was they didn't understand the law. That they didn't understand that the law was not there to prove man's righteousness, but to prove man's fallen nature and to put, prove that they need God. We see in Galatians 3.19, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should, should, uh, should come to whom the promise has been made, Jesus Christ, right? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law was given to show us our transgressions, to show us how bad that we are. We look at the Ten Commandments, we fail them all. Like we do, you say, oh, well, I, don't, I haven't sent God's name in vain. Well, you've lived that way. You've represented God in a vain way at some time in your life. We, we, we've broken them all. It was given to show us our need for Christ. Look at Galatians 3, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the pr- promises of God? Certainly not. If the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Right? It's not by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law was not given for freedom and forgiveness of sin. It was not, not given for that. It was given as a schoolmaster a tutor, something to reveal how wicked our hearts are naturally, that, that everything that we do, everything that we want is bad. Yet the, the Pharisees refuse to admit that they're sinners. They, they refuse to admit that they are unwell and wrought with this destroying sinful nature, the, the sin disease that encircles their soul in order to strangle it into eternal death. Uh, Many today even are like this as well, and they're like a cancer patient that's been offered a cure and refuses to believe that they have that cancer. Ah, don't don't have it. And they continue to live in such a state that it's not really here. They're in denial. Well, that is how many people today are when it comes to sin. They, they, They live their lives like it doesn't exist. Like it's just an idea that some religious person had, and, and it's, it's so 1980, it's so 1970, it's so 10 BC. <laughs> it's, you know, whatever they want to go, they want to say, well, this is, you know, a long, this is so old, we don't really do that. All, all the while, that cancer eats at their body, that sin eats at their body and destroys them inch by inch to the grave. It's so sad to watch people that continue to refuse to submit to God and to believe that they are sinners. I pray that we are not like the Pharisees and scribes, that, 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 that we understand the terrible state that man's heart is in apart from Jesus Christ, that we understand the need for the gospel, that we are fallen and sinful, we are dreadfully sick and in need of a physician, and not just any physician, not me, you're in need of the great physician, namely Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, not only do we need to personally come to the great physician, but we need to introduce others to the great physician as well. Jesus Christ came to save the sick, and he came to save the unwell. 
I couldn't, couldn't uh, resist going into a physician story since we mentioned physicians. I am an ER physician. Um, and as an ER physician, COVID was really strange for me. So while many Americans locked themselves up in their house, many across the world locked themselves up in the house, I went to the ER. And I had to put tubes down people's throats that had COVID. I had to see multiple COVID patients and live life like it was about the same as it normally was. And so that was how I, how I lived. People would come in and they were terrified by the diagnosis. Many that came in with COVID just had some sniffles, but they thought they were dying. And so multiple people would just come in just for me to say, everything looks okay. I think you're going to make it. And I had to walk into room after room and expose myself to sick people. And I'm not asking for any glory or recognition for this. I was doing my job. I was doing what I was paid to do, what I was called to do with that. But how good of a doctor would I have been if I would have walked in or walked to the door and said, sorry, you all are unclean. You got COVID. I'm not coming anywhere near you. You know what? I'm going somewhere else. Uh, I don't want to catch what you have, and I'm gonna, you need to go find somewhere else. Aren't we glad that our medical professionals, for the most part, didn't do that. But, but in an even greater way, aren't we glad that our Savior didn't do that? That he didn't come to earth and say, oh, you've got sickness. It's a lot worse than COVID. It's called sin, and it leads to hell for all eternity. I can't be near you. You need to go somewhere else. You need to find another teacher. Go somewhere else. You're not welcome here. He chose to associate himself with people like Matthew the un, most unlikely, undeserved, unwell person that Jewish culture could have imagined. And the completely sinless Jesus Christ surrounds himself by the overwhelmingly sinful. In the same way, we as believers, speaking to believers right now, we need to be willing to be like Jesus in that. We need to be willing to associate ourselves with people that we think don't deserve it. They don't deserve Jesus. They're horrible people. People we work with that maybe use the Lord's name in vain multiple times that we try to avoid. We see them coming down one side. We're like, I'm going this way. I'm not going near that guy. That guy's, he's, he's probably going to hell. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be near him. I might catch that disease that he has called sin. And, and we definitely need to be wise where we put ourselves. There's places we shouldn't go because we know our predispositions. Our, our predisposition to certain sins. There's certain places that Jesus could go that you can't. And you need to recognize your own sinfulness, your own struggles. You know, if you're an alcoholic going to, the beer, going to the bar to probably witness people, it's probably not the best idea for you, I'll just be honest. But when we look at people at our work and we think about the person that we really don't want to talk to, we think about that person at school that, man, when they come down the hallway, we try to duck behind our locker. We try to stay away from them because that person just drives us crazy. And those are the people that are just so lost that need to hear the gospel. And so I pray that we don't rank people saying, well, you deserve to hear the gospel, so I'll share it with you. That person, no, nah, no, nah, you, you, you ain't going to accept them. Because a lot of times the people that we think that are the least likely to accept it, the Matthews of the world, the, the lowest of the lows, are the people that actually come. A lot of times it's those quote-unquote good people, those moral people, those people that, that, that vote the right way, those people that have the right beliefs about abortion, those people that have the right beliefs about marriage, they're the ones that are the hardest to reach because they're already, quote-unquote, good. A lot of times those Matthews, those worst of the worst, the people that you start to get talking and, and then the, you know, their life's going really, really bad. You know, their, their wife just left them or their husband just left them or their, their kids are in rebellion and they're noticing that all these decisions they've made throughout their lives or maybe their grades are failing and they're in high school, all these decisions they've made are not going really well. 
and they know something's off, something's wrong, and God will use those to draw them. So just use those for everyday gospel conversations. Ask the quote-unquote agnostic atheist, which we know that no one is. I don't believe in atheists. Remember that? There's a book called that. Uh, We don't believe in atheists because Romans 1 says that all are born with the knowledge of God so that no man is without excuse. Ask them what they believe about the afterlife and why. Just get a a gospel conversation. Listen to what they believe, and a lot of times they'll let you share what you believe. We should certainly exercise wisdom, as we said before, but we do not need to avoid sinners altogether. We need to engage with our lost world and share the gospel. When Jesus refers to the righteous as sick, he refers to the the, the condition we ended our last sermon with. He refers to the sickness of sin. There is no greater problem in our world than the dreadful condition of sin. As we come to a close, we've seen that Christ calls the unlikely, the undeserved, and the unwell. Which of these are you? If you don't see yourself in all three of these, I'm a little concerned about your heart. If you are a believer, you should definitely have seen all three of these in yourself, that you were unlikely, you were the the last one that should have been in, you were undeserved, you didn't do anything really to deserve it, right? We, We were bent on rebellion, we were doomed for destruction, we were unholy, unrighteous, and we were all unwell. We were sick and in great need of the great physician. So if if you can't identify with Matthew, I'm worried that you may not have a sober-minded view of yourself, even as a believer. Because you may not see that you really needed a Savior. And I pray that you have truly, in complete humility and submission, given your life to Christ. I pray that you speak as Paul does when he refers to himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If Christ Jesus came to save sinners, not righteous people, if you were a righteous person, you're not saved by Christ because he didn't come to save you because you don't really exist. It's a self-righteousness. It's not a true righteousness. He didn't come to save people that live in their bubbles of thinking they're okay. He came to save people who would humble themselves before him and realize their depravity, that they deserve hell, but that he died on the cross for their sins, that he gave his life for them, and that by faith in him, believing that he died, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose three days later, is now at the right hand of the Father, that's true salvation come through repentance and faith in him. Uh, do you believe that of yourself, that you are of the foremost of sinners? When you, when you look around, are there other people that you're like, well, I know they're worse than I am? And that, every time I hear a gospel conversation, when I listen to different evangelists, I'm amazed just about without a doubt people will say, well, I'm better than her. I'm better than him. And isn't that a lie? Isn't that such a lie? Because in our minds, I'm not saying we need to have this false humility or self-deprecation uh, to try to feel self-righteous that way too. But you should know more of your own sins than anybody else's because you know what you've thought. Well, really forgot most of it. Uh, you probably can't remember a lot of your sins. There's a lot more that you forget. But, but you know more of your sins. Sin is sin in God's eyes. Yes, there's certain sins that are worse than others. I get that. But one sin sends you to hell. But you, you look back and you think of all the sins over your entire life, and you think of the worst sinner you can think of, you can't name half as many. You, know, you can't name a fraction of the sins that you know about yourself. So you should be able to speak like Paul does, of whom I am the foremost. When I, whenever I put my sins on the balance, I realize that I know a whole lot more of mine than anyone else in this world. And through that, it drives us to repentance because knowledge of our sinfulness, of our undeservedness, should drive us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ.
And if we are saved, that knowledge should further drive us to evangelism because we know that others are like us and they're in need of, of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ as well. I pray that each person here knows Jesus Christ personally as their Lord and Savior, that they've put their faith and trust in Jesus. They believe that he died on the cross for their sins, that he rose three days later, that he is our Savior. And I pray that for those who are saved, that you realize the tremendous grace of God to save your wretched soul and my wretched soul. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews better, uh, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Is that not the most depressing scripture you'll ever read in your life? It's like, you know, we talk about having seeker-sensitive churches. My friends, no one seeks after God. God seeks them. And our job is to share the gospel with all, not knowing who God is seeking and who God isn't. Many times you'll feel like you're just beating your head against a wall. We talked about that in growth group this morning. But God is still working, and he'll use that for his glory no matter what. But in response of Christ's great mercy upon you, go and proclaim freedom for those who are captives to sin. So many in our world need that freedom. There is freedom in his name, the name of who? Jesus. And see the unlikely unity of the church grow day by day. Let us pray. Lord, we're going to have a little time of reflection in just a moment. Let's pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to just reflect for a moment on the message that you've given us, Lord. Pray that you help us to judge whether or not we are truly in you, that we are saved. God, may you reveal to us the, the, the errors of our ways, the places where we really haven't given our lives to you. If there's anyone here that has heard this and they've realized that they, they really aren't saved, that they take this time to, to make things right with you, I'd love to talk with somebody that may be there. For others, maybe they haven't, maybe they've fully given their life to you, they are a believer, but they haven't realized just how wonderful what you did was, that they haven't realized it enough to, to, to realize they need to tell others about it too, that they need to respond like Matthew. May we take this time of just reflection. Uh, the altar up here is open. You can also just come up and stand. May we take this time to glorify you.